And good morning to everyone. Uh, we are in a, a teaching series right now where we are going back to the very beginning of the Bible, to the book of Genesis and, and to its first few chapters actually, to look at some of the really foundational truths that underlie pretty much everything else we believe about God, about ourselves, about our relationship with Him, and about a number of other very important um, elements. And, and so in, in the last couple of weeks, uh, we've actually been in a little mini-series of this looking at the question, what does it mean to be human? What does it mean to be a human being? Uh, and, and we noted uh, a couple times already, when you go back to Genesis and you think about what man and woman were created to be and what is a human being, you see an expression a few different times, and that expression is the image of God. Men and women, boys and girls, we are all created in God's image. And, and, and it's indicated there that human beings are unique here, that we are unlike the rest of the animal kingdom or anything else in the world. Uh, we were created in the image of God. And rather than trying to define that term directly and explicitly, what we're doing is we are looking at how the image of God in us is demonstrated, how it is brought out for us in the different relationships that we have, in fact, through three basic relationships. Two weeks ago, we looked at humanity's relationship to the rest of creation, to our world, uh, what we often call our environment. And we discovered that, yes, even though we are part of creation, that we are also, in some sense, over creation, that we are given a special role to manage creation, uh, to cultivate it for our use, yes, but also to tend it and to preserve it and to care for it. Then last week, we looked at another very important relationship, and that is our relationship with one another. Last week was the Lego sermon. We found that there were Legos. We need to connect to one another. And we discovered that God made us to need other human beings, not just for procreation and existence, but also for help and for companionship. And in particular, God created us male and female. And we saw that him creating us male and female was kind of a pointer to a beautiful interdependence, a beautiful cooperation and interpersonal love and intimacy that we can have with one another that actually reflects the very nature of God as he relates within himself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that's a very mysterious thing, but we, we explored it a little bit last week. Today we're going to look at the last of these relationships, which is really the first of the relationships, because it's foundational to the other two. And today we're going to talk about human beings' ability and our responsibility to relate to God himself. We're going to talk about relationship with God, because this is again something that sets us apart from the rest of the animal kingdom, from the rest of creation, that we relate not just to our world, not just to each other, but we relate even primarily to God. So let's go ahead and read through the Bible passage we're going to look at today. It's in Genesis chapter 2, Genesis chapter 2, and we're going to start in verse 8, go through verse 16. Again, this is the account of God creating the first human beings and placing them in the Garden of Eden. Genesis 2.8. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, 
And there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon, and the one that is, it is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold, and the gold of that land is good. Bedellum and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria, and the fourth river is the Euphrates. And the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. In most ancient religions, especially the ones around what we call the Middle East today, the religions of the people that were kind of rubbing shoulders with the Israelites at the time of the Old Testament, at the time Genesis was actually written down. In most of those religions, the relationship between human beings and God, or the gods, was primarily one of servitude. Servitude. The gods, who had no needs of their own, or had, who, had, who had needs of their own, I'm sorry, they had lots of needs. The gods needed food. They needed energy. They needed, you know, self-esteem. And these gods had gotten tired of meeting these needs on their own. And so they created human beings in order to serve them, to meet some of these needs. And so human beings in, in this concept were really just slaves of the gods. If you were an ancient pagan worshiper and you were making an animal sacrifice, for instance, you actually thought of this as feeding your god. He was eating the sacrifice. He needed this. And if you didn't do it right... Or if you didn't do it often enough, the God would actually withhold his blessing from you or maybe decide to even wipe you out since you weren't doing your job well enough at caring for the God and serving him and meeting his needs. Now, when it comes to the real God, when it comes to the God of the Bible, the situation is very different. In fact, it's, it's quite the opposite. The true God the true God, as we mentioned last week, is perfectly sufficient within himself and has no unmet needs at all. God does not eat or drink the blood of bulls and goats, he says later on in the Psalms. He does not need us to do anything for him. He doesn't need anything from us. He is self-sufficient, which means he is free. He is completely free to act with complete unselfishness, complete generosity and grace he is free to bless us joyfully and unconditionally. Why? Because he doesn't need anything from us. He cannot be manipulated because he has no needs. He is 100% the giver and we are 100% the receivers. He does not need us. Notice how Genesis 2 is not about how we are to serve God or feed him, but how he is freely providing for us. We're not feeding the God, he's feeding us. Not just with food, there's more to it than that. Look at verse 9. It says there that when God designed the Garden of Eden, he did it not merely to meet our nutritional needs, but as a place of incredible beauty. And the garden didn't actually take up all of Eden. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but it was an extra special part of Eden. And, and, God, and there was actually a river that, that flowed to it supplying it from Eden. It was kind of an annex on the east part of Eden. And the waters of Eden flowed into the garden that God had planted and designed. Back in 2010, um, our Nathan, our oldest, was a senior in high school, and we were visiting colleges with him. And one day, I drove with him out to Duke University 
And I took Nathan to see the Sarah P. Duke Gardens, which are just off of West Campus there at Duke. And some of you have probably been there. It is a beautiful place. And this was, this was an absolutely gorgeous day, first week in April. Um, actually, the basketball team was playing for the national title that night, and so they had given the students the day off. And a lot of them, this was a Monday, were just hanging out in the garden, and they were picnicking, and they were socializing, and they were playing frisbee in this beautiful place. And Nathan and I were kind of sitting up on a hill, and I remember Nathan looked at me, and he said, I can't believe that a place like this actually exists. And I said, I didn't, I didn't say it, but I thought it. I said, for $60,000 a student, you could probably believe it exists, or whatever they were charging back then. But of course, the reason for all that money is one of the reasons is that those gardens are meticulously planned and they are laid out and cared for by expert gardeners and they are a testament to the skill of these people and the effort that they put into keeping this garden perfect and beautiful. I mention this because the idea of a garden in biblical times, you might have a garden at your house, some of you probably do because you grow vegetables and things. That wasn't the idea of a garden in, in Bible times. It wasn't for vegetables like we use the word today, or even really for flowers. It, but it was a place of great beauty, and it was carefully planned out, and a garden was designed, and this is important, specifically for people to enjoy. That's what a garden was. And if God himself were to plan and plant a garden like this one, you can bet that it would make the Sarah P. Duke Gardens look like a patch of dandelions in comparison. Now my point is, the Garden of Eden was not just a place where the man and the woman could go and have their needs met. It was a place they could come to simply to bask in the beauty and in the genius of their God. In other words, it was a place of worship. Adam and Eve were invited to this place to meet with God and to glorify God, not by feeding him or serving him or meeting any of his needs, but by enjoying him and marveling at his greatness and his goodness. That's what happened in the Garden of Eden. The Garden of Eden was not just a garden, it was a temple. It was a place where man and God could meet. The fact that the temple in Jerusalem, when it was built thousands of years later, actually had decorations in it that recalled the Garden of Eden. And that was to remind the Israelites that man was originally created to worship God and to enjoy God and all his blessings. When you take your dog for a walk, if you have a dog, I know many of you do. Dogs love walks. I know. I had one for years, and that was the, her favorite word was walk. They have a great time. And the dog really enjoys that walk, but you know what he's doing pretty much? Pretty much he's, he's mostly figuring out where the other dogs have relieved themselves, and he's joining in on the fun, right? That's pretty much his idea of a walk. But you are different than your dog. That's good. <laughs> yeah. No, you have the opportunity to do some things on that walk that he cannot do. While he's looking down, you can be looking up at everything that's around you. And, and whatever beauty you can take in, you should take it in and marvel at the greatness of God at making those things and his goodness at making you in such a way that you could even have the ability to enjoy them. And then praise his name. This is a uniquely human activity. Your dog cannot do it. But when you do it, you are actually fulfilling your purpose as a human being. And it comes from being made in God's own image and being able to relate to him in that way. It's an incredible gift that you and I have been given. But God goes on. And in verse 16, he says to the man and the woman, you may. Sometimes we skip ahead to the next part, you may not. 
But let's stop here. You may. You may surely, the ESV says. Most of your translations say, you may freely. There was an emphasis here. You may freely eat whatever you want, whatever you decide. Humans were created with free will. We are created with free will. Part of what it means to be a human is to make choices, to decide. And this was a great blessing for Adam and Eve. The choices were wide open with one solitary exception that we'll see in a minute. All of the other choices, all of the trees in that garden, all of the ways of enjoying themselves were perfectly good. Then this was not just a choice of two options here. This was not like, well, God says to them, I'm giving you chocolate and vanilla, but stay away from the chocolate. No, this is more like, you know, Baskin-Robbins on steroids. This is like lots and lots of varieties. So many choices. So many ways to enjoy God's goodness. And they're free. The man and the woman were free to explore them in any combination, in any order, in any way that they chose. What an awesome gift. You and I, as human beings, can make choices, decisions, in ways that the animals cannot. Okay, getting back to your poor dog. If you have your dog and you feed him, and you keep feeding him, and keep feeding him, and feeding him, and feeding him, and you just keep giving him more and more food, guess what he'll do? He'll keep eating. He will keep eating. Most dogs will keep eating until they either pass out or throw up, or both. You know why? Because your, your dog is a creature of instinct. He's ruled by his appetites. But you are not. You're not. It's not, it's not that you don't have appetites. Yes, you do. You have, you have instincts, you have desires, you have strong inclinations and preferences. But as a human being, here's the key. You have the freedom to say no to your instincts. You have the freedom to act against them. You can go on a diet. You can fast for the purpose of connecting with God. Or going the other way, you can decide to try something new on your pizza. You know, just out of curiosity, even though you think you might not like it. And of course, food is maybe just symbolic of many, many areas in which we make decisions. Some of these decisions can go against our instincts or what seem to be our immediate needs. We're free to act in that way. We are free to act unselfishly toward people. We are free to act with compassion. Only human beings can freely do this. Now, there are people who deny God's existence and they will try to explain these choices and actions of ours away by attributing them to our capacity for advanced reasoning. They'll say, well, we're really just like the animals, but we're just a lot smarter than they are. We have more brain capacity. But what seems like a free and unselfish choice, or a choice even to be compassionate to somebody, is really just a choice for our own good. Well, maybe because we get you know, a dopamine hit from knowing that other people think that we're nice and kind or something like that. It's all just instinct. It's just that our instincts are much more complex than those of the lower animals. So that's how they explain it. And if you, you can go there if you want. You can choose to believe that argument. But I want you to keep something in mind if you believe that argument. It leads to determinism. Let me explain that. If there is no God, if there is no God, and therefore there is no image of God in us, there is no immaterial part of a person who allows him, that allows us to make choices, then all of life is predetermined. We're robots. Compassion is nothing more than a cold, if complex, calculation. Love is just an interaction of hormones. And every so-called choice that we make is really no choice at all, 
We had to do it. It's simply an unavoidable result of physical processes. You know, neurons firing and chemicals mixing, making it seem like we're choosing to us, but ultimately it's all just higher animal instincts. Any choice that we think we're making is in the end really just an illusion. And we're doing what we were pre-programmed to do by our genetics and our brain and our chemistry and where we landed on this earth, et cetera, et cetera. And there's nothing we can do about it. It's all determined. Now, the Bible, on the other hand, says something different. It says that our choices are real. It says there's an immaterial part of us that makes those choices, and it says that those choices make a difference, and as a result, we are responsible for them. And here's where we take the next step, and we see that our choices are not only real, but that there is a moral component to our choices. There is a right, and there is a wrong. God says, you are free. But then he says, but you must not. You must not do this one particular thing. We live in a moral world. We live in a moral universe with moral responsibilities. Again, this is something the animals do not share with us. They don't. When you're watching a nature documentary and there's some lion chasing some poor wildebeest across the savannah, the wildebeest does not ever turn around and say to the lion, wait, this is wrong. Why are you just going to hurt me? How could you do something like this? Because the lion would be like, what are you talking about? That's not even a thing. You better run. Right? Now, we, we, we sometimes root for the wildebeest. Some of you probably root for the lion, I realize this. But we, we, we project our feelings onto the animal sometimes. But that's only because we're human and they're not. They don't, they're not thinking that. You know what they're thinking? They're thinking, run, run, or eat wildebeest. That's what they're thinking. Or, or, to bring it closer to home, let's give the dogs a break here. When your cat, <laughs> we're going to talk about moral evil now, so now we've got to talk about cats. No, just kidding, sorry. When your cat scratches up your leather sofa, you may discipline your cat in various ways, right? because you don't want that to happen again. But all you're really doing with a cat is you're trying to condition the cat for different behavior in the future. Good luck, but that's what you're trying to do. You can make no appeal with your cat to right and wrong. You know, good and evil, righteousness and unrighteousness, because your cat has no sense of moral responsibility. And that is because he has not been given the ability to relate to God, like you have. Human beings are very different. If we see a human being oppressing another human being, mistreating another human being, we don't let him get away with it just on an appeal to instinct. We say, no, that's wrong. It's wrong. When we punish people according to the law for doing things that are against the law, we do it, yes, in some respects as a deterrent and to reform behavior, kind of like you do with your cat, but that's not all, not all there is to it. We human beings are also looking for something we call justice. That's why it's called the justice system, not the behavior modification system. Whether we admit it or not, we believe, all of us believe, there is a transcendent moral law to which human beings are responsible. Justice, the word justice in its various forms is one of the biggest issues of our time, right? People talk about it all the time. But if you give up the idea of humans being created by God to relate to God, then you have no rational basis for believing in anything called justice. Because where would justice come from? 
If you have a friend who denies God's existence, and you go up to this friend and you just randomly bop them on the back of the head, hard. Okay, do this to a friend who's smaller than you, I guess. I don't know. But if, if it's an atheist friend, you can hit them on the back of the head. And if they say, hey, why'd you do that? You could say, well, I don't know. It must have been a chemical reaction in my brain over which I have no ultimate control. But then if he says this, well, you shouldn't do that because it's wrong. Then you say, why? And in the end, he really has no answer. You see, if there's no law giver, then there's no law. But all of us sense deep down inside that there is a law. There is a moral right and wrong, and that human beings should somehow be made accountable to it. Somehow, justice has been hardwired into us by somebody. Now, people do try to come up with, with ethical systems, uh, systems of right and wrong that don't include God. And what they usually come up with is this. It's wrong if it hurts somebody else. Otherwise, it's okay. So randomly bopping someone on the head is wrong because it causes pain to another person and that's bad. But in areas where that's not an issue, if it doesn't hurt anybody, then we are free to do whatever we want and to make any choice that we want. Now this, is, this probably is, is one of the most common ethics today. Ways people make moral decisions. If it doesn't hurt anybody else, it's fine. Well. There are three things we can say to that. First of all, without a God, you still have the same problem. You still have no foundation for calling something wrong just because it hurts somebody. Because why is it wrong to hurt somebody? Second, there are a lot of choices that we make that don't seem like they hurt others. But in the long run, they end up doing just that. There are many far-reaching, unintended consequences to almost all of our actions. Because remember, from last week, we're all hooked together. We're all interdependent. Human beings are by nature connected to other people. And so we're always affecting each other in all sorts of different ways, sometimes that we don't realize. But as Christians, we can take it a step farther. And we can look at what God says here in Genesis 2. I want you to think about it. What exactly is the moral prohibition that God gives to Adam and Eve in Genesis 2. He says, in the midst of the garden, there's a tree. And on this tree, there's fruit. And eating that fruit is wrong. You, can't, you shouldn't eat that fruit. So let's ask the question, how would that hurt anybody? I mean, how would eating that fruit hurt? It's just a piece of fruit. It's not poison. How is it hurting anybody if I exercise my human freedom just to take a bite of that delicious-looking piece of fruit? You're right. On the surface, it doesn't seem to hurt anybody. But for those of us who trust in God's Word, this is a reminder to us that our moral system of right and wrong is not founded on whether or not a certain action hurts another human being. It is founded on the commandments of a holy God, a God who is incredibly generous with us and who does everything for our good, not because he has to, but because he wants to. Not because he needs us, but because he loves us. To eat the fruit of that tree, harmless though it might seem, would be an offense against God. It will be a defiance of his love. It will be a denial of his goodness and a failure to worship him because it would effectively be saying, God, you are not enough. God gave us our sense of morality as part of his image, and he gives us moral commands for our good 
and for his glory. One author puts it this way. The inanimate parts of creation, he's talking about the sun and the moon and the stars. He says they obey God mechanistically. God says do this and they do it. God tells the sun to shine and it shines. The animals obey God instinctively. Only human beings have the ability to obey God voluntarily of our own free will. Only we can glorify God in that way. But if we disobey him, we are fracturing that love and trust relationship that he created us to have with him. And this is true whether what we do seems to hurt somebody else or not. Ultimately, ultimately, we know this, that Adam's sin ended up hurting a lot of people. There's about 250 people in this room that Adam's sin hurt. Everyone who has ever been born since then, because we have all inherited the sin nature that Adam received that day. Now we'll talk more about that in future weeks. But for now, let's just bring this home with a few practical applications of this truth. So we're made in God's image. We have an ability to worship him. We can make free choices. That includes moral choices. So what does that mean? What, what are some things that, that follow from that for us in our lives? Well, first of all, it means that our lives are meant to consist of more than just existing. More than just trudging along, keeping ourselves alive and fed and clothed and entertained. God made us for more than that. He created us with an ability to know him, to relate to him, to talk with him, and he created us with a special ability to appreciate his glory, his beauty, his majesty, his awesome power, his grace and mercy, all these things we can interact with and God wants us to. It enriches our lives and it's more than just existing. Now I know that a lot of days in your life and my life go by and it seems like we never get any further than the daily grind, right? We just go through the day, we, we meet our needs, we do all the things we have to do, we, you know, we, that's it. And I can tell you, and I should tell you, and I will tell you, I'll stand up here behind this pul pulpit music stand and tell you, you need to take time away from the daily grind. You need to spend some time alone with God. You need to take some time and to spend it taking in God and his creation and his goodness. You should. You actually need to do that. It is built into you. We don't have time to go into this today. We will in the future. But God actually set apart a whole day of the week for you to do that very thing. But you can also worship God in the midst of the daily grind. As Adam and Eve did. As they did when they were exalting God as they worked in the garden. As you work, as you do what you do on a Monday, on a Wednesday, on a Thursday... Remember that God is glorified in your work. We learned that, that by interacting constructively with his creation, you're actually accentuating his glory. And as you relate to the other people in your life, remember that just the ability to do that is a gift from God. And you might not live in the Garden of Eden, but that doesn't change the fact that everywhere you go, you are surrounded by evidence of God's glory and goodness. Every time you watch a butterfly land on a leaf or a squirrel scurry up a tree, you can just laugh for joy, at, at, the, 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 at amusement, at the cool things that God has made. Even the people around you, even the ones who can be a pain in the neck, if you stop and think about it, they're pretty awesome creatures. They all point back, even if in an imperfect way, to, to the God who made them. Life may not always be a garden, but it can still be a place of worship. You can still look for God in the everyday. But here's another thing we need to take away from this account in Genesis 2. We are morally responsible before God. 
we are morally responsible before the person who created us. We cannot blame the sins that we commit on our instincts, on our upbringing, on our life situation, on our hormones, or even on the devil. Yes, these things contribute to our failures to obey God, but ultimately when we sin, we are making a free moral choice. We're making a decision to do it. And there is weight to this choice. It has consequences, even if it doesn't seem to do much harm to anybody. Sin is a failure to honor our relationship with God. It is a refusal to find him to be sufficient. It is saying to God, you're not enough. I need something else. Sin is more than just a mistake, an unfortunate mistake. It's not just a miscalculation. It's a free, willful act of rebellion against God, and it is an insult to his goodness and love. And just like it happens when, when, when your kids or your family or your friends or whoever insult your love and your goodness and betray your trust by sinning against you and you know what that feels like, the offense against God, our sin, creates a break in our relationship with him that we cannot do anything to fix. Sinning makes you God's enemy and it earns his judgment because he is a God of justice. And it does something to you too and to me. It produces a fatal infection in the depth of your being that ultimately results in death and that separation from God will last for all of eternity. Now, can anything be done about this? Well, if there's a way to fix our problem, it's going to have to be a cure, not for our mistakes, but for our sin. In order for us to be made whole again, something or someone is going to have to deal with this broken relationship with God because that's at the core of our very being. Someone needs to restore justice. The breach must be healed. The sin must be paid for. But even more than that, someone has to go back and someone has to replace the wrong choice with the right choice. We almost need some kind of Adam 2.0. You know, some human being with God's image has to make a free moral decision, but this time he has to go against his instincts and against his greatest temptation. Someone has to obey God where we disobeyed, and then somehow, if it's possible, that person's obedience has to be credited back to us so that we can be right with God again. In other words, someone has to go back to the garden and get it right. Well, somebody did. Only it was a different garden. It wasn't Eden. It was in Gethsemane. Then another human being, Jesus, in the face of infinite suffering and pain, made the most important decision in human history. A decision that went against his deepest human desires. A decision that went against the strongest temptations a man has ever had to deal with. Romans 5 calls it the one act of righteousness that leads to justification in life for all men. By putting your trust in this person, the eternal death that you have earned through your sin, the damage you've done to your own soul, and the break in your relationship with the God who made you can all be reversed. Amen. Do you long to be the person that you were created to be? Oh, yes. To find out, not just in theory, but in your experience, what it really means to be human?
then make a decision today to stop trusting in your own efforts to be a good person or to live a meaningful life or to justify your own existence. Instead, put your trust in Jesus Christ, the second Adam, Adam 2.0, who freely chose to die in your place even though he knew everything about you and receive his free gift of forgiveness and start the journey back to becoming the person that God initially created you to be. That's his invitation. It isn't just to become a better person. It's to become a new person. A whole person. Let's pray.